take your Bible and turn to Psalm 148. This is on page 526 of the Bibles that are in the pews. It's been some time since I've been with you all, but the last time we were together, we were in the second of those concluding Hallel Psalms, Psalm 147. Now we've reached the third, and if you remember, the reason why they're called Hallel Psalms is because they begin and end with a hallelujah. Quite literally in Hebrew, hallelujah is how they end and how they begin. And you'll notice this in Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Literally, hallelujah. And at the end, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And so without giving away the application, we have to pray that we might accomplish it. Let's do that before we read the word of God. Our Father, we do ask that your worthy praises would so fill our heart and mind and life that we would be a microcosm of the new creation and of all things that you have made to adore and give you worthy praise. And we know that as we ask for this, that is not possible within ourselves. It can only be accomplished by the mediation of the one who is himself the new creation, the resurrection, and the life, Jesus, our Lord, exalted to the right hand of God, exalted in praise, himself the salvation of his people. And so we ask, O oh, Jesus, you the Savior of your people, would you work your great accomplishment and rescue us? from all other praise to your everlasting glory. Hear us, we ask, and speak to us now in the reading and the preaching of your word that we might lay it to heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. And amen. Some commentators describe this psalm as a kind of 
retelling and praise of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account. And so maybe it's appropriate that we begin by thinking about the laws of physics. When you think about the laws of physics, which we are taught even in high school, all things must obey, there is something bigger and greater, a law more permanent, more essential than even entropy, the moving and progression of things we're told from order to disorder. One single universal law, and you can see it repeated again and again and again and again. If you didn't catch it, it's right there. Praise the Lord. It is a command. This is not the great option. This is the great obedience. All creation must praise the Lord. And we'll look at this text together in two parts. The first part, we're going to sort of look together at the whole under this idea, essential praise. If you want, this is the law. And then we'll move on to restored praise and the gospel. But notice how the praise of the triune God is the law of all creation. Did you hear how many times the creation is directly referenced and called upon to praise the Lord who is alone exalted? And in fact, the word all is used so many times. All, 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 all. Nothing is left out. All things exist and were created for God's praise. Think about this. The voice that created all things by the word of his power also gives this purpose to all that he has made, that there would be this direction, praise to the Lord who made them. This is what you and I are made for. This is what we are commanded to do. This is that direction or the baton which the angelic choirs follow in their praises. Notice how there is, though, initially a cataloging of creation in this psalm. And James Montgomery Boyce quotes someone else, and I like this quote, so I'm going to use it. He says, the psalmist explores just about every area of human knowledge to catalog the potential members of his cosmic congregation. He begins in the field of cosmology, angels, stars, and waters above the skies. Then, when he's satisfied himself that he has exhausted the celestial realm, he turns to the terrestrial. Marine biology, great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Meteorology. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, geomorphology and dendrology, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, zoology and ornithology, wild animals, cattle, cattle small creatures and flying birds, and a capital, political geography, sociology and anthropology, kings of the earth, all nations, princes and rulers, young men and maidens, old men and children, there really can't have been many unthumbed articles left in his encyclopedia. But this is more than an encyclopedia. This isn't just a kind of retelling. You'll find all of these things in creation. This is not even just an inventory. It is the registry of created things that together compose and give forth the praise of the great and triune God. In all of these things, every creature, there must be no lack of praise. And so, whatever you have thought about the world around you, this is now the opportunity to recalibrate and think differently about the world, its functions, its direction, its problems. Here's the proper perspective on all things. Everything you look at, 
Everything you taste, everything you can smell, everything you can contemplate that is in the created order, ideas themselves exist for this one great and exclusive purpose. With that chief end of man, so also the chief end of creation is to glorify God. And so when Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, is bidden to stop the children from singing, he says, no, indeed, if they were to cancel their crying out, then the rocks would take it up. So creation then, this gives us a brand new way to think about the world. Creation is not just for our enjoyment and fitting around us into comfortable spheres. It isn't for us to exploit. It isn't just for us to interpret and examine by study. The design of it all, though there are those features about it that give us comfort, enjoyment, give us many opportunities to explore and to interpret, the design of it all is this one exclusive purpose, praise and glory to God. That's the purpose of the whole catalog of everything that is, down to molecules all the way up to the biggest stars. All these things praise the Lord. One way to think about it, in other words, is you see in the creation a reflection, only a reflection, granted, but a true reflection of the infinite measure of the praise that our infinite God deserves. Notice how the heavens tell his praise. Now, the commentator, Steve Lawson, says that heaven is alive with the, praise, <clears throat> with the praise of God. Think about the psalmist writing in Psalm 19. David says, the heavens declare what? what it? Thank you, Lucy. The glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day is uttering this speech. This is what it's constantly doing. If you see a gray sky outside when you leave tonight, what's it doing? It's praising the Lord. But also the earth and its inhabitants declare the praise of God. The ocean, massive animals, the weather elements that we are not capable of stopping testify to the unstoppable, benevolent goodness and absolute faithfulness of God, Steve Lawson again says. God's grandeur, his majesty, is on display in everything that he's made. Wherever you look, wherever you go, whatever animals interest you, wild things, domestic, all creatures, great and small, magnify the worthiness of the worthy God. Now, it's easy to say that about creatures, but what about people? After all, you probably know some people that you struggle with. Maybe even it's next door. Maybe it's in the next side of the bed. People are meant and exist to praise the Lord. You will never meet a single person whose life is not purposed for the praise of God and in whose life in some measure, even if they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, you will not see something praiseworthy of God from the most important person in the world. You can imagine who that might be in, in your particular idea to the person who our society doesn't even think about whose gravestone will have no name at all. Maybe the person whose mind is tormented and disordered, who has the deepest stain of sin upon his soul, every last person. Whether born, unborn, exists and reflects the praise of God. And that ought to shape then, shouldn't it, the way that we think about people. 
We may be disgusted by sin, but people ought not to disgust us. Because there is within, between us all this common bond, we mirror, we reflect, we are meant to testify to the praise of God. The whole book of nature is just the book of praise. That's what God deserves. And he won't share it with any other. Now, we've looked at the whole of the creation here, the directory of creation, if you will. But I want you to notice that in the psalm, there are two parts to creation. And you'll see this from verses 1 to verses 5 and 6, and then verses 7 up through 13. Verse 1 to 5 and 6, praise the Lord from the heavens. And do you notice then, verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord. Then verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth. And then verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord. Do you catch that? The psalmist is saying, here are two, if you like, discrete units of a common unity that together form the creation and which together are the arena of the praise of God. When we just prayed a little while ago, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven, we are not just mimicking and reflecting on these two, if you like, halves to the creation. We are acknowledging that both exist and both together are harmonious when the God of the universe who created them is praised. This is their function. This is what they exist to do, earth and heaven alike. The highest heavens praise God and you can see this verses 5 and 6 for his sovereignty and for his faithfulness he commanded they were created he established them forever and ever think of this beyond all capacity of man to build them the stars at the furthest reaches of our visible universe which continues to expand those stars were placed there by God, and continue from the moment of creation to be constantly upheld by him. And they will be, and they're beyond the reach and touch of our interference. They'll continue as long as this creation endures. They will give him praise. And so the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, give praise to God, together with all that is in the higher heavens, the angels, and the hosts, the mighty armies of the spiritual places. But so too the lower creation. The lower creation of the earth praises him because God is exalted over all. Notice there in verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. And this is where men often find themselves confused, seeking to exalt themselves in their sin but who else deserves to be exalted when we consider the intricate workings of weather, the movements and passage of time, the developments of seasons, animals not having to be fed by men, but each finding their lunch and dinner without our help, and God through them all, through all these things providing for man. There is nothing chance. We ourselves in this creation are small and weak, 
But these things have been determined by Almighty God for the magnificence of his worthy name. So to him, like it says in Psalm 115, to him and to him alone, his name deserves the worth, the honor, the reputation. His name alone is great. And this is what it means that we would praise him, that we would acknowledge that and put ourselves when needed, back into the rightful place of remembering that we are really rather small and our God is really rather big. We exist to know this. We exist to speak this, to sing this. Not with a sort of distant awareness of a God who is so magnificent and worthy of praise, but with that personal, real, almost tangible mystical experience by the Spirit through the Word of God, the Son, the Word himself, we are to call upon God with that sort of familiarity of his own sons and daughters. Two halves to the creation to give God constant praise, but both, you'll notice, are joined. And this is where we begin to develop the psalm with, I think, what is the intended real beauty of it. So I hope you can follow me here. As with many of the Psalms, there is a kind of poetic form, and there is a poetic form about this. And I'm sorry if you didn't like poetry in high school. Better get used to it. It's in the Bible a lot, and that's what your songs are supposed to be like. But notice the poetic pattern here. In many Psalms, there is a kind of ascending and descending pattern. Or often, it rather reverses. There's a sort of descending and final concluding ascent up to praise the Lord. This is the, the function of the Psalms. This is how they go individually. This is how the books of the Psalm, of which there are five, each of them ends with a praise the Lord in this sort of pattern. This is how the whole of the Psalter develops from, as one person puts it, lament to praise, from descent to ascent. Now notice how that works its way out. That logic of poetry works its way out here in a kind of paralleling, a kind of beautiful comparison and contrast. You notice how we begin with the heavens, the very highest of the heavens. Praise him in the heights. And then we move down to the earth. And then we rise back up again. And you might not notice this. It looks like a descent. But we rise back up again in the people of God. Not just kings, but even old men and children are to praise the name of the Lord because he has raised up a horn for his people who are near to him. The heavens, the heavens of the heavens are the place where God has said he will, in one sense, occupy as his special temple, the place near to him. And we are the people that are near to him. So there is this passage down through the creation, down from the heavens, down from the angelic host, down even to the stars, the sun, the moon, down to the deep things of the ocean, up onto the land. And now we begin to move cattle, together with before that the seasons, and then finally to people that God has created. Can you see that pattern? I hope you can catch this. I think this is a significant one. What the significance entails is multiple things here I'd like to just quickly demonstrate. And the first really significant one being this. That not only all things should praise the Lord, 
but that there is not only a nearness of people to God, but a special position for the vulnerable. Do you notice how this goes? When we finally start ascending out of the seas, we go to fire and hail, then we move to the mountains and all hills, we finally then move from the landscape to the beasts that populate the landscape and the flying birds, and then kings, seems appropriate. But then it seems to descend to princes, young men, maidens, old men, children. But this is no descent at all. The purpose in showing that these are God's people who are near to them, who are near to him, is to show the truly elevated status of the weakest, the old men and the infants of the congregation. Isn't that remarkable? Here, out of all the creation, God, in a special way, not only says he is deserving of praise by all people, but he is especially near to the weak. There is a security, there is a glory given to the needy and the vulnerable, not by accident, but because he will put his praise in the mouths of infants. And he will ensure that it goes out with strength and power and victory through the weak. He will empower his church to praise, including us who are weak and helpless. So in your helpless and weak moments, when you feel, I'm not sure I can do it today, I don't know how, I am going to praise the Lord. I don't even want to go to church. Just remember this. Your God, who made these things, who commands the praise of them all, has written not only this fundamental law of praise, but has written in that law that he would be the closest to you when you are at your weakest and most helpless. That must lead to praise. So then the question again, how should we praise the Lord? Well, since that is the application, it bears a little bit of exploration. Like the creation itself, surely this is how we ought to praise the Lord. And again, James Montgomery Boyce notes how the heavenly bodies, for instance, praise the Lord. Do they do it in secret? No, you can see them pretty clearly on a, on a, on a cloudless night. And does their praise vary? Does it go up and down with the seasons? No, it's continually upheld by the faithfulness of a faithful God. This is how we ought to praise the Lord. For such nearness, we ought to glorify him unvaryingly and openly, publicly. And we do that, of course, by hearing and responding to his command. Just hearing and answering to the word when it is read and preached, as we together confessed earlier in the catechism lesson, hearing, answering, laying it up, practicing it our lives, this is how we praise the Lord. There are specific acts of worship, of course, and we're engaged in some of them even as we gather this evening, the singing of God's praises, praying to the Lord, hearing the word read and preached, together with giving and other aspects of our worship. These things are a sort of mini aspect, a a, a tiny vignette of the whole of life and the whole of creation. What we do here in worship is really the story of all things in all creation, especially in the new creation. This is what we do. We praise the Lord in obedience. We come together, we hear, we listen, we respond, we meet with our God, our God meets with us, and we rejoice 
and we obey. So as the other creatures do, we respond to the word of the Lord. Now, this is where we really come to the problem, isn't it? Because you know, from Genesis chapter 3 on, the story is not untarnished. There is not obedience. There is not praise. With the temptation and fall of man, now suddenly man's height, his imagined exalted height and arrogance leads him to seek out for himself the praise that belongs to God alone. It is a shocking moment. Not just Genesis 3. It ought to, as it were, just continually electrify us to go out, take a beautiful walk on a spring day, and suddenly realize all these things praise the Lord, but people don't. Do you see that there's a problem here? This is a deep problem, not just because there's a command and we're disobeying, but this is what things are for. How can it be that God's consummate creature, the man that he made in his own image, would now break with all the creation, both halves of it, in their united praise, and rather than praise the Lord, praise himself? That's jarring. Jarring and heavy. Throughout history, maybe you can think of ancients who worshipped the sun god. Pharaoh thought he was the sun god. Worshipping the stars, the planets, animals. Even to this day, people follow horoscopes and in many ways seem to apparently worship their pets. They pray to men. They overvalue their own opinion of themselves and what other people think about them. Is this not what Paul is writing about there in Romans chapter 1 when he says that while the invisible attributes of God, his power, his glory, his eternal nature are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, yet man willfully exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Abandons the praise of God for his own self-seeking praise. It is, after all, not as though you can avoid worship. You can be uh, the most strident atheist in the world, and yet worship. In fact, you must. You are made for worship. You are made to praise someone. And indeed, all things do. It's inescapable. It's striking to me that in a day when we're passing, it seems, from the age of materialistic science, when people bow down at the foot of equations and microscopes, while much of that remains, there is, even within the scientific community, a great deal of superstition and occult and belief in things that have no basis in anything other than the imagination of man. It really is astonishing. This is man's condition. Insistent on becoming a self-creator, rejecting the creator in exchange for creation, but particularly in our day, self-creation. This is even more astonishing because what the Word of God says about the creation 
in relation to man tells us plainly that this has entirely distressed and poisoned and oppressed, marred and dishonored the rest of everything in the world. Think of what Romans 8.19 says. The creation waits with eager longing. It's these birth pangs Paul is talking about. There's this groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is not out there happily praising the Lord. Creation is groaning and subjected, in the next verse he tells us, to vanity. Why? Because of man's sin. Because of our sin. The praiselessness of men results in a creation that is under a curse. With all of the interest in the environment, the processes of nature, a fascination with created order, it is astonishing that we ourselves would be the cause of its demise. How very far we have fallen, what a distance we have come from the praise we ought to render. We could even ask it this way, what have we done to the universe? Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? What a contrast with the psalm before us. How is there any hope? Well, let's move on to the second part and quickly. And we'll focus here on verses 13 and 14, but especially verse 14. There is a renewal of praise in the gospel. Creation is restored to praise the Lord because he lifts up the horn of his people. The only solution to our stubborn refusal to praise the Lord has to be found in a greater strength. The hardness of our hearts is such that God alone can come in strength and power and grace to overcome our obstinate resistance and our helplessness against our own inflexibility and demands for exaltation, he must come. He must do something. And this is described in the strength of the horn. He has raised up a horn. And when you think about the horn here, we're not talking about that beep you hear along the highway when you change lanes too quickly. Not thinking either about the sort of instrument that you might hear at a symphony or something. This is an animal horn. He has raised up an animal horn, the horn perhaps of a bull. This is a, a powerful animal with a horn. We have uh, a relative who sometime back, I believe, went running with the bulls of Pamplona. And I'm not sure about what you think about the wisdom of this, but I do know that when they're coming, you get out of the way. Because if you don't, what happens? You're going to die. Or at least end up in the hospital. I had an uncle who raised cows, and he was famously immune to their pawing and stamping and heavy breathing. But we ought, when we think of the horn here, to have that sense of proper fear, because God's strength is on display. Now, there's something that's lovely about the imagery of a horn. The horn of an animal if you have any animals that grow horns, and Paul's around them all the time, even if you don't have any, a horn doesn't start out fully grown. It has to start out very small, and it grows up, and often through the course of years develops until when it is mature, then the animal has intense power, incredible power against anyone who would come against it. Dangerous power. 
This is the symbol here. The Lord has raised up a dangerous power, a mature power, a power you ought to be afraid of for his people. Not a, not a power that ought to frighten his people. Do you notice this? But a power that is for his people. Here are several verses from the word of God describing the horn. 1 Samuel 2.1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Or Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. God is strong for his people. Now, many think that this was a psalm that was written at the time of the exile, and here is the restoration of God's people foretold. Think about God's people in Egypt. No horn, powerless. Think about God's people in Babylonia. No horn, powerless. Who's going to bring them back? What chances are there that an emperor would be raised up who would say, yes, come back and rebuild the temple while you're at it? That takes a special sort of power. Not a Cyrus power, but a God power. God raised up the horn of his people, and almighty strength brought them back. A good, satisfying, dangerous power was exerted to save his people and bring them to himself. This is where we now need to focus in a little bit further. He brings his people back from exile. But horns are especially notable for Israel in a particular place. One particular place. And do you know what that would be? Worship. Worship in the temple at the altar. Early in 1 Kings chapter 1, we find Joab, who's greatly offended David, and he is clinging to the horns of the altar for safety. The altar has horns. Why would an altar have horns? It does, and we read in Exodus 27, verse 2, the altar was to be built with not just two horns, like an animal, but four horns, double the power, as it were. A squaring of the perfection of strength. Now, what's the altar? It's the place where a powerful animal, usually often with horns, will come to die and give up its strength in the place of others. The animal dies, but the horns of the altar remind us not that the altar has strength or power, but that what is done upon the altar has extraordinary power and strength. The sacrifice of this animal does something for sinful men who do not praise the Lord as they ought, together with the creation. It opens the way to reconciliation and everlasting praise. Something mighty is done at the altar. Now, do you see where this is going already? Because there is a greater sacrifice, is there not? Not upon an altar, but upon a cross. The Lamb lays down his life for the people of God in an act of infinite power. Now, why would I make that connection? Because Zechariah does. 
The father of John the Baptist prophesies in Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. He's speaking about Jesus. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's raised up the one who is the strength of God, who upon the terrible cross, sacrificing himself, will bring us by the power of God to praise him as we ought. When we think about the most powerful forces that men have at their disposal, we think of destructive things, don't we? And there is destruction at the cross. But when we think of the most powerful things at the disposal of the God-man, it is that he would lay down his life for his friends. That we who were far off might be brought near by the immense power of his death in our place. Isn't that astonishing? All this praise comes down to this horn. All the praise of all creation must concenter on this one singular moment in history after the fall. The strength of Jesus Christ must again restore the creation to praise. Is this not what Paul says in Romans chapter 5? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you catch what he's saying? He's not saying, while we were weak, Jesus was weak. No. He's saying, while we were weak, Jesus was weak, and that was the very strength of God for you and for me. That was the horn. Christ dying for us. This is the almighty power of God on display, perfecting the praises of his people. This is where you cling. This is where you go for safety. And this results in the praise of God in the nearness of his people. Through Jesus Christ, the veil is torn. We enter in as a people near to him. This is what his strength has done. Not destroyed, but created. Brought us into the new creation. Opened the very gates of heaven. Brought us in to be considered worthy and wanted, embraced, exalted, glorified, seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. This is who we are. And that means that when we come in to worship, whenever we have the praises of God in our mouth, there ought to be also in our heart that wild and untamed glory and joy and sense of what it really means. Christ, my strength, died in my place, is risen up in glory, and by his atoning death, I have been brought in here. The world is right again. The world is being made right again by the Lamb who is depicted in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 as a lamb with seven horns. The perfection of strength in his weakness for his victory over sin, death, hell, and our obstinacy to praise our God. This is why he raises up 
the horn. This is why he exalts the Son of God upon the cross and exalts him further all the way to the heavens upon his resurrection that we might praise him whose name alone is exalted and at whose name every knee ought to bow and worship and praise the name that is above every other name. I hope that it excites you. It excites me. But we are going to get a little further before we conclude. Because the praise of the church does something that really is bigger than the biggest events that you'll ever hear about in your lifetime. Whatever horrible tragedies happen, whatever amazing inventions we're told are out there, none of them will even begin to compare to what the praises renewed in the church, the praise of man renewed in the church does. The horn Christ himself has lifted us up that there might be a new creation. Listen to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. Does that sound like Psalm 148? For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Did you notice what he's saying here? All you created things. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he has restored his people to praise. Again, Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Jesus Christ coming, drawing near brings forth the praise of his people and in the praises of his people restores the whole creation. Now, you want to think about what's good for the world. You want to have discussions about solar energy and green and this and that. Fine, we can have those discussions. But you want to know what's really good for the world? People need to praise Jesus. This is what's good for the world. The world is only restored when the praise of God is restored to his people. And it will be because he is coming to judge the world in equity and set all right, put his praise in the mouth of his people and secure it forever. So notice this then. What the psalm is telling us is that after the resurrection, we need to reread what we are told are the fundamental laws of the world. There is a powerful inclination of the world to deterioration. No question. We're all heading down the road to death unless Jesus comes first. But the actual and true trajectory and direction of the world is not order to disorder. Do you catch this? The true direction of the world, the end of all things, is not entropy, but God reorganizing the world in perfect order out of chaos and disorder, vanity and death by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the direction. That's the agenda. That's the command. That's where things are going. And you and I have only to just joyfully get on board and start singing. That's the call. And to do so, again, citing Boyce with 
the whole of the creation. Notice already the spiritual creatures praise the Lord for the church. Through the church, Ephesians 3 tells us, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not only spiritual creatures, but physical creatures. As we read earlier from Romans 8, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole physical world is preparing for that great day when the children of God are revealed and the praises of God are renewed and every tongue will confess. Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I dare say that's good news. And I dare say those are marching orders. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take these things, firmly embed them in our hearts, that we would be filled up with the awe of your majesty that can, in Christ, in his death, accomplish so much. You, O worthy God, deserve all the praise, and we ask that as we contemplate and enter in more deeply each day to that union and communion which we possess with Jesus Christ by your Spirit, that we might be people of praise who set the world right in our little place, by our adoration, not of our agenda, our ways, our plans, our purposes, but of your redeeming grace. Hear us, we pray, and give us that help which we need, for we cry out to you in Jesus' name. Amen.